2: part of the Acast Creator Network. Today, we're going to try something just a little bit different. In the last podcast, I asked any of our listeners from America to send us in some comments, given that we were talking about a lot of things American. And one very nice correspondent, friend of the podcast, I hope, sent in a very long email, actually the longest email that we've ever received at the other hand, with lots and lots of points. His email got me thinking. It was quite critical of us. Uh, He thought that we were far too unfriendly towards Donald Trump and similar lines of thinking, and far too friendly towards Joe Biden and Joe Biden type policies. And so I've been thinking about how best to try and respond. So I'm gonna try and experiment today. I'm going to talk through his points, or in particular, I'm going to answer some of his points and try to rebut them, but in a particular way. One of the things that I think is wrong with the way in which we conduct our politics these days is that it's done in a way that is not respectful, it's not done in a listening way, we simply are not listening to each other, we're talking at each other or around or above or just not engaging in a civilised way or not engaging at all. So I thought I'd try and do something that remedied some of those things that I was talking about there. And... Do it in a particular way that interests me at the moment because I am, as some of our listeners will know, particularly interested in AI. What I've done is that I've taken the text of our correspondent's email, taken the salient arguments that he has used, and using AI, given them a voice. And it'll be my voice replying to some of the points that he's made. So it's an experiment on many different levels. I hope it works. If it doesn't, please let me know. If you like it, please let me know. Obviously, it's a bit rough around the edges, particularly in the sense that I'm using free AI software to convert text to voice, and that means that the voice is a little robotic. But I think some people, certainly me, I was surprised by how lifelike the voices are on free primitive software. made me realize just how good this stuff is going to get when it gets even more lifelike. So forgive the little, as I say, roughness around the edges. Give it a listen and please tell me what you think.
0: Chris and Jim, while I can understand the criticism of Donald Trump, I am constantly surprised by the almost complete suspension on your podcasts of any argument that could be considered anti-Biden in nature. It is fair to say that the general stance taken is one of mild fascination that any U.S. citizen could consider voting for Trump and is dismissed as not only right-wing but implied borderline fascism. The reasoning you use around the avoidance of a recession in 23 and a much sought after economic soft landing along with various US economic indicators, such as market performance, appear to be the main support to your arguments for embracing the current administration for another term.
2: Thanks, Clara. We have often on the podcast made criticisms of Biden. We've remarked on things like his obvious frailty and the expansion of the budget deficit to levels that could be described as scary, particularly as the economy is at full employment. That's just one example of an economic criticism. On that deficit point, it's a rule of thumb that economists often think that the budget deficit should be in rough balance when the economy is operating at full capacity, which it is. And we think that the latter point, the economy is firing on all cylinders, is a very good thing, and is at least in part down to Biden's policies. Now, things always get complicated when you think about debt sustainability, and that's where we start to criticise Biden, because we feel that there is a risk, only that, that the debt situation that the US is in could, not yet, but could become unsustainable. So an example of how we criticise Biden. Yes, we point without apology to the overall state of the economy as one key measure of success. Not all of it is down to Biden, but a lot is. But it's not just the economy or the booming stock market that leads us to our support for Biden. It is that choice, Trump or Biden, that we, like many Americans, would prefer not to make, Opting for Biden is the least worst alternative, in our view. And there is no third choice, not yet, anyway. Trump, in our view, is a populist at best, a neo-fascist at worst. Islamophobia, treatment of gold star families, treatment of women, comments about women, January the 6th, his election denial, his promise to be a dictator, the utter chaos of his administration, his weird fondness for Putin, and a long list of other factors, all we think disqualify him from office. In a previous version of America, any one of these factors would have led most Americans to reject him.
0: Thanks for that. I hear you, but I think you are exaggerating Trump's downsides. Nobody is perfect, and you are downplaying Biden's obvious frailties that make him unfit for office. Let's get into specifics. In the first instance, which president is more likely to lead America and the world into war? The U.S. has been at war for most of its existence, and has expended much blood and treasure pursuing such policies the dire predictions of world war three lauded by the mainstream media when trump won the 2016 election turned out to be not only exaggerated and incorrect but in hindsight were directly opposed to business as usual u.s military industrial complex objectives juxtapose this unambiguous policy against the record of the current administration in the same arena and you can clearly identify which administration is more likely to ignite a major conflict.
2: I don't recall many serious people predicting World War III because of Trump back in 2016. But I agree, lots of people have made silly predictions about all sorts of different things. I'm willing to be corrected. Maybe some of the mainstream media did say that. But as I say, I'm unaware of serious people making those kinds of very serious predictions. I do know that Trump himself raised the prospect before his election of World War Three. And that was in the context of what was happening in Syria at the time. And he was suggesting that if Hillary Clinton became president, that World War Three would result. As I say, World War Three has been raised as a specter many times by many people, and often they shouldn't. It is true what you say. On one definition of war, a very broad definition, it has to be said, the US has indeed been engaged in conflict for the bulk of its existence. It's a surprising fact. But on that very broad definition of war, so have many other countries been at war for most of their existence. It is simply a sad fact of human history. It's also the price you pay in the United States for being the largest economy and the most powerful country in the world. With all that economic heft, comes vested interests your vested interests that have to be protected sometimes war with fascists is deemed morally necessary sometimes you go to war because you're attacked what neither of us know is what would have happened in the absence of war the counterfactual american isolationism which is something that you are hinting at there that trump has advocated in various ways isolationism could have been could have seen world history take a much nastier turn Maybe the world would have been a much better place. I know which of these alternatives my money is on.
0: Let's have a look at Biden's record. What has happened on his watch? Starting with a disastrous withdrawal in Afghanistan, the United States taxpayers are now funding a seemingly endless war in the Ukraine, is embroiled in a no-win situation in Gaza, and is currently bombing Syria, Iraq and Yemen, while China looks on with lingering intent toward Taiwan. One can certainly view current US foreign policy as overly aggressive, but you and Jim completely exonerate any culpability for these ongoing crises to Biden and his administration. Whether or not Putin would have invaded Ukraine under another administration is open to speculation. However there is reason to believe Trump was not as obsessed as the current administration with NATO expansion in this region. Let's contrast this core theme of NATO expansionism for a moment with what the US response Would be if any country in the american hemisphere decided to enter a military alliance with russia or china well we already know what the response would be it already happened in cuba in 1962 i am in no way pro-russian or sycophantic to putin however due consideration needs to be given to how the russians view pro-nato expansionism not into a former warsaw pact buffer state but to a state formerly within the soviet union Perhaps that sad truth is that the world was safer under the previous administration, despite all the sabre-rattling from mainstream media depicting the Orange Men is so bad rhetoric 24-7.
2: I'm not sure that you've contradicted yourself at least once in that line of reasoning. You started with the Afghan withdrawal. I agree totally that that was wrong. It was certainly handled incredibly badly. But describing that as something that Biden is responsible for is probably right. But the way in which the conclusion that you should reach from that line of reasoning is that they perhaps shouldn't have withdrawn from Afghanistan or at least withdrawn in the way that they did, that they should have stayed more active for longer. And that's running counter to your broader point that Trump and indeed others like Trump, always argue for American isolationism. So you can't have it both ways. If you want to be isolationist, you have to be isolationist and get out of all conflicts, not just Afghanistan. I think America bombing the Middle East, yes, absolutely. It's got all sorts of issues, all sorts of problems, all sorts of questions. But again, I come back to that point about the counterfactual. What's the alternative? Isolationism, I presume. That could make the situation worse indeed many people many military types do argue that if america withdrew from the middle east completely other actors would fill the vacuum you always have to ask what would happen in a different set of circumstances what are the trade-offs what would happen if you didn't pursue course of action a b or c would american withdrawal from the middle east completely make the situation worse it might it might not i don't know i suspect it would What do I know? Somebody I do know needs to keep Iran and ISIS in check. These terrorists want to harm all of us. Without US involvement, Russia has become dominant in Syria and indeed elsewhere in the region. Not being involved in the Middle East would seem to invite Iran-Russian dominance of the Middle East. And I would assert an oil price of $200 a barrel and you Americans paying European prices for your gasoline. Gasoline. Isolation leaves vacuums that will be filled. There is, on your other point about NATO, a different view. All those Eastern European countries that have joined NATO simply asked to join. It wasn't expansionism. It wasn't aggressive NATO action, embroiling countries into membership. Sweden and Finland have just joined NATO because they asked to. Nobody lent on them. Arguably, the only person that lent on Sweden and Finland was Putin himself. Saying no to any or all of these countries might have been seen by Moscow as appeasement. And that appeasement could have led to dreadful consequences. It could have encouraged Russia to be even more expansionist, to be even more revanchist, to want to take revenge for the perceived slights that Putin often witters on about. Acceding to requests for NATO membership is hardly reckless expansionism. And you have to ask, what would have happened if you had said no to these countries? What message would it have sent to them? What message would it have sent to the Kremlin? Moving on to Ukraine and its desire, its stated desire to join NATO. Nobody has ever said from NATO that Ukraine is going to join. Various comments have been made about what Ukraine might have to do to join but nobody on the Western side has said that Ukraine is going to join NATO. More generally, you have to accept that either Ukraine is a separate sovereign state or it isn't, no matter whether it was in the USSR, no matter what happened to Ukraine or what was the geography of Ukraine in 1600. Again, as Putin often mistakenly describes the history of the country. If Ukraine is a separate sovereign state, then it is entitled to apply to any international organisation it wants to. A lot of the blame for the current situation lies with President Obama's failure to stand up to Putin in 2014, when Putin took over Crimea and eastern Ukraine. That was the moment that Putin decided we are weak, decadent, and would not stand in the way of his expansionist desires. If your isolationism leads to Ukraine falling, I think Putin will go after the Baltics, Moldova and Poland. And that, I think, will lead to American troops getting involved. At least one of your senators has said exactly the same thing. The only way American troops wouldn't get involved if he goes after another NATO country because of the Article 5 of NATO's constitution is if Trump has already pulled you out of NATO, if he's expressed that isolationism that you seem to admire. Right now, Arming Ukraine is actually a cheap way to massively degrade the Russian threat without spilling any Western blood, without putting any American boys at risk. It's a paradox. I think that by pursuing this isolationist tack, you are actually making the loss of American lives greater rather than smaller as a risk. So arguing that the world would have been safer under a Trump administration is, again, as I've said before, arguing the counterfactual. By definition, we just don't know. I happen to think that we'd be much closer to yet another full-on European war if Putin had been granted Ukraine. But as I keep saying, we just don't know.
1: Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step by step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to slash Wondersuite. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: Okay, we are going to have to agree to disagree about much of that. Let's move on to immigration and the border. I own homes near the border with Mexico. I can assure you that the administration's largesse around policing the US-Mexico border is the definition of insanity. I personally know border agents who operate in this theater, and what they describe to me is an actual invasion. The numbers have increased exponentially since Biden took power. On day one he dismantled almost all policies designed to secure the border from remain in Mexico to deportation of illegals to a dismantling of border agent autonomy around arrest and seizure. The most recent furor around the Schumer-McConnell bill depicted by Republicans as dead on arrival is insincere at best, for these laws already exist and just have to be enforced. Biden's recent claim that he is in some way being constrained by the House of Representatives is total fabrication, the solution is to simply return to the policies he originally reversed on day one. The toll this invasion is taking on this country is now reaching epidemic proportions, so-called sanctuary cities, mainly democratic-controlled entities already suffering from high crime and law enforcement failures, are now overrun by illegal aliens who are consuming vast quantities of already overstretched taxpayer-funded resources. Border towns across Texas, New Mexico, Arizona and California now resemble war zones. The danger of cartels controlling the U.S.-Mexico border cannot be overstated, from the flow of drugs to unvetted gang members, to potential terrorists who surely see a major weakness to once again strike this country. While I have great sympathy and empathy for those who wish to better their lives, there are clear procedures to accomplish this legally, yet the current situation allows for those who break U.S. law to not be repatriated but rewarded with hotels, transportation and cash payments, all funded by the U.S. taxpayer. We are now in the farcical situation where Texas has been forced to defend the border of the United States because the federal government refuses to do so. Moreover, as you will note, the federal government has used every function, albeit unconstitutional, to use up Texas' right to defend itself.
2: I 100% agree that the border looks like a disaster area. But Trump's demonization of immigrants and racist remarks do not help the situation. He said, for example, and I'm quoting here, immigrants are poisoning the blood of our country. Now that's an argument familiar to anyone who has read Hitler's Mein Kampf. The border has been an unresolved issue for decades. A very popular TV series from over 20 years ago, The West Wing, features a fictionalised TV debate between Democrat and Republican candidates that could, and is, being replayed today. In that fictional debate, many points are made that have contemporary resonance. For instance, one of the candidates says, nobody in the US suggests building a wall to keep back Canadian immigration either along the main border, the 49th parallel, or along the one between Alaska and Canada. That's because Canada is a rich country where people want to live. Many Mexicans and other nationalities clearly don't live in countries like Canada. That's why immigration is so intractable an issue for so many countries. No matter what barriers are put up, people always find ways around, or perhaps under them. Building walls attacks symptoms, not causes. Perhaps the problem can only be managed rather than solved. I completely agree that it could be better managed, but again, this has proven no easy task for every country that tries it. Beware populists who say they have a magical solution. They do not. In the US and elsewhere, immigration has become an issue utterly politicised with at least one political party dedicated to using it as a stick to which, with which to beat their opponents. They have realised they have no incentive whatsoever to solve the problem. Congressional Republicans get everything they ask for and then say no, for example. You say that it didn't need the recent shenanigans in Congress and that it was a sham debate. But the fact is that the Republicans asked for something on the border. They got it from the White House. They got it from Biden. And then they said no. That is politicization of a problem. That is a political party wanting to use the problem for political purposes. They are not seeing that as a problem that they uh, have any interest in solving. Trump didn't build his wall. That's an example of how populists operate. They take a given problem, promise to fix it, and then they don't. It is simply not true, as some people say, that fascists make at least make the trains run on time. They don't. Chaos and grievance are the stock in trade of the populist. They have a vested interest in keeping the chaos and grievances going, not solving them. How big is the problem? You use phrases like invasion and war zone. These are strong and emotive descriptions. I'll leave others to decide whether these descriptions are accurate. All of us agree, I think, that our words should reflect facts and data. The best estimates, which are lagged, given the difficulty inherent in tracing undocumented migrants are that the number of unauthorized immigrants in the United States was at 12.2 million in 2007 and fell to 10.5 million on the most recent estimate which is for 2021. That latter number is the same as it was in 2004 and lower than every year from 2005 to 2015. As I said, these numbers are lagged and do not yet include what has been happening recently. It is thought likely, highly probable, that the numbers are going up, but there are few, if any hard, reliable numbers. The US Customs and Border Protection Agency reports monthly encounters at the border. These numbers actually steadily fell over the two decades to 2020, but have shot up since then. In 2000, at the turn of the most recent century, there were 1.643 million encounters at the Mexican border. In 2020, There were 400,000. In 2023, the latest data, there were 3.2 million encounters. I acknowledge that is a massive increase and must have led to all sorts of issues and problems. I must admit, I was taken aback when I researched these numbers. But nobody seems to know why the numbers have risen so suddenly. Lots of theories, but few settled facts. Some people think there was a sudden post-COVID surge reflecting the previous low numbers during COVID. Some people think it's all Biden's fault. I'm not sure any president could have handled that surge well. The surge is not because of people from Mexico. There's been a massive increase in people from Colombia, Cuba, Nicaragua, Peru and Venezuela. For example, since 2020, the numbers of people coming from Colombia have gone from next to nothing to a lot. I think we need to understand the reasons behind the surge. While better border management is undoubtedly needed an acknowledgement that U.S. illegal drug consumption has made a significant contribution to some of these countries becoming narco-states, from which people seek to flee. In the United States, you might have less of an immigration problem if you had a smaller drug problem. You mentioned the costs of illegal immigration. I've researched those numbers as well. There are lots of claims, and a range of estimates is very wide indeed. Trump himself has quoted $275 billion a year as the cost of illegal immigration, and he uses that number to justify paying for his wall, saying that it would pay for itself. Nobody knows, even approximately, what the costs of illegal immigration are. They are not eligible for the public benefits like Social Security, food stamps, and cash assistance that many people seem to think they are. It is estimated that half the undocumented, undocumented migrants in the country are working under fake Social Security numbers, thereby paying taxes and Social Security payments that are recorded as coming from U.S. citizens or legal immigrants. Undocumented migrants are not eligible for tax credits, so they are taxed at a higher rate than similar low-income Americans. Everyone, even illegals, pays sales taxes and rent. Yes, illegal immigrants turn up in emergency rooms and therefore consume health resources. The biggest cost, however, to... the public purse is via public education the kids of illegal immigrants are entitled to go to school a lot of these kids actually are american-born and they go on to become workers often highly productive ones so that short-term education cost via kids going to school could become over time a long-term benefit but as i say nobody knows the true cost of benefits so i'm wary of strong claims about the numbers on Congress, yes, Congress is a 100% a disaster area. A different kind of one to the border, but a disaster area nonetheless. It is truly, in my view, a swamp. Thank goodness for the US Constitution that stops these hacks and charlatans from doing even more damage. But I do not see Trump as the man who will drain the swamp. Quite the opposite, in fact. Immigration has massive political salience everywhere. It is a very difficult problem to solve. Populists in many countries claim they have the magic wand, they also want to rule countries that at the moment are experiencing massive labor shortages. That's a tricky one, isn't it?
0: You can't use labor shortages as an excuse for illegal immigration. But let's move on. I want to talk about the way Biden has weaponized the institutions of the state, the weaponization of federal agencies to target and prosecute political enemies. Your podcast often ponders the imposition of a de facto totalitarian regime, should Trump be reelected. You should examine this notion a little closer as the Biden administration has distinguished itself in this domain by already weaponizing large swathes of the US system of justice against not only Trump, but numerous others including those involved in the so-called insurrection of January 6th. You can argue the merits of actions such as raiding Mar-a-Lago, but similar offences committed by Mr Biden are completely whitewashed and ignored. The media and Department of Justice also ignored BLM riots in 2020, including an attack on Trump and his delegation adjacent to St. John's Church in DC. More recently, we have witnessed a media blackout of pro-Palestinian protests within the same chambers of government with absolutely zero consequences.
2: There's a lot there and it needs unpicking briefly. I'll try anyway. What you said there, and indeed other things that you have said, suggest that things that bother you, that you think are illegal or just wrong, are not being covered by the mainstream media. They're whitewashed, they're ignored. I ask, therefore, how on earth can anybody know about them if they're being ignored? They must be appearing somewhere. Now, I agree, there are plenty of things in mainstream media to be suspicious of. Whenever anything appears to do with economics or finance, my supposed area of expertise, I often, often guffaw with laughter at the nonsense that they spout. But it is, I think, a source, and it is a more reliable source than anything I read on Twitter or Facebook. I would regard nothing, and I mean nothing, that I see on Twitter or Facebook with anything other than deep, deep scepticism and something that needs to be fact-checked. So when you assert things that are being whitewashed or not appearing in mainstream media, I don't know what your sources are, I don't know what your data sources are, I don't know what facts you are relying on support your arguments. So so it therefore is very, very hard to counter. You talk about the weaponization of the justice system. Well, Trump has promised to do that in very explicit terms, to be a dictator on day one, to go after, in his words, the Biden crime family, and that he has promised from the DOJ to the FBI, to the CIA, any agency he can get his hands on, he is going to use, to weaponize, using your language, uh, against the Biden crime family again, in Trump's language. The most recent report from the Department of Justice has caused Biden no end of trouble with its references to his infirmities and being an old man. Now, that was a DOJ-appointed special prosecutor. If Biden is weaponizing the Department of Justice to go after his enemies, he doesn't appear to be doing a very good job, does he? So I think that one uh, example alone Uh, refutes your argument that even if Biden was trying to do what you say he's doing, and I don't think he is, he isn't making a very good job of it. The Department of Justice is, constitutionally at least, independent of the White House. You might argue, as many do, that Biden is the puppet master behind the prosecution of Trump and people like Peter Navarro that you also mention. But there is zero credible evidence behind this assertion, in my view. If you say it is obvious that the Biden administration is behind all the prosecutions, you have to have some evidence beyond the usual conspiracy theories. For the avoidance of doubt, I'm not accusing you of indulging in conspiracy theories, but I know plenty of people do. Trump is the only person to have promised to weaponize the institutions of state to go after his enemies. You know more than me about the non-reporting of the words and actions of people like the Vice President, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer. By definition, if they haven't reported, then how can anyone know about them?
0: Thanks. I could talk about the insider dealing of members of Congress to enrich themselves, but I think we have run out of time. Perhaps we should do this again. Maybe your listeners could let us know if they would like another debate.
2: Thanks, Clara. As you say, we've run out of time. And there is much left on the table to discuss. And maybe we will do another one like this, or maybe we'll even do it with a a real person rather than the words of a real person filtered through an AI robot. I hope people have found this interesting. I hope that we've achieved our goal of trying to engage on the issues, trying to listen to what the other side has to say. I know the correspondent that sent us that long email is a listener, hence the very, very long email trying to rebut some or indeed all of the comments that Jim and I make about the United States. Nothing in this should be construed as Jim Powers' opinion, of course. This has been me, Chris Johns, talking with uh, our correspondent via the AI robot. Uh, Please let us know what you think about this experiment and whether or not you think we've achieved our goals. Thanks for listening.